Well, Happy New Year. I skipped last Sunday. Uh, I had other things to do. No, uh, we were out of town, and, uh, but it's good to be back. This is uh, kind of the kickoff to our spring, if you will. Uh, this is what we kind of consider the first day of spring uh, in terms of the way the church thinks about life. We're stepping back into Ephesians. All things are sort of beginning new with the new year, and it's kind of a really fun and exciting time, at least for me, the way I look at it is it just sort of marks in my heart the opportunity to begin new things, to think in new ways, to uh, kind of leave what I disliked about part of my life and story in 2022 and think about rebuilding for the new year just marks this great time. And so it's a fun time to step back into these things and recall kind of where we are or who we've been and who God is calling us to be, which is actually really fitting for where we are in Ephesians. So for those of you that have been with us for a little while, um, we started Ephesians back in the very beginning of the fall. We came out of the summer, we started this new series with a little bit different twist to how we normally teach and preach. We, we wanted to take a little bit of a slower trajectory through this book. We're looking at verses in smaller swaths. I told you a couple of distinctive things what happened. One, we would try and we would be shortening down those sermons. That really hasn't happened. I went back and looked. We're still like 48 minutes here, 50, whatever. So it was like that didn't necessarily work. But we got to the place where we're doing one or two verses at a time, doing a deep dive and also asking ourselves, how does this change the way that I think and I live today? Like how does this truly affect me? We've been working our way through Ephesians. And I'm going to give you a little bit of snap, a background of that book again, because it has been a while. And I do recognize that a lot of us are here this morning and maybe you started coming over Christmas or you're here with a friend. And so you're like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to give you a little bit of a little bit of background of Ephesians. But we spent chapter one uh, in the fall. We're stepping into chapter two, which is where Paul's going to get real intentional about giving some very specific theological truth to the church. And his relationship with the church in Ephesus is really interesting, right? So for those of you that may remember or may have heard this, this is just a brief little recap. But Paul had this really intense relationship with the church in Ephesus. He first came across him at the end of his first missionary journey when he's returning from Corinth, headed back to Jerusalem. He stops in Ephesus and has this pretty incredible interaction with the people there. Acts 18 records it. He has this kind of beginning of a relationship with them. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila there, and they begin to teach and begin to kind of cultivate the beginnings of the church. Paul returns from Jerusalem back to Ephesus a few years later, and he establishes a real presence there. In fact, we know that it was one of the longest places that Paul spent any time in ministry. He spent three full years in Ephesus teaching on a daily basis. Acts 19 actually records this entire process. It says that he showed up in town, and for three months he went to the synagogue. And three months he taught daily in the synagogue to anyone that showed up until the Jewish people had just had it. They'd had plenty. They began to revolt. They were like, we don't want to hear this anymore. Your uh, kind of uh, propagation of the gospel is a threat to our very life. And so they kind of have a little uprising. And so Paul says, fine, if you don't want me to teach here, we'll just go down the street. So he gets this giant crowd of people. They go to this lecture hall down the street in Ephesus, and he begins to teach there, and he's there for two and a half years. Now, the church in Ephesus is really just beginning, but the city of Ephesus has been around for a long time. It was actually a major trade city. It sat as the gateway to Asia. It was really well known for a couple of things. One, for its trade and its culture, and two, for this temple that it had outside of the city to the goddess Artemis. And it was the Greek goddess, the Roman goddess Diana, same thing. They had this, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 
And it was this massive temple, and there was a huge economy around this temple of blacksmiths and silversmiths that made these little trinkets and idols, and they had this sort of booming business where they would sell these idols to people, and they would take them up to worship. And, and so the city was really well known, and the church was just beginning. And so for those three years, Paul taught on a daily basis to this large crowd of people. And they would gather in the lecture hall after they had, were booted from the synagogue, and for two and a half years, he would teach every single day. And the ministry there began to thrive. In fact, it began to thrive so much that people were coming to Christ in record numbers. And Acts 19 tells us that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that Paul was were wearing were being used to heal people. God was doing extraordinary things. Well, this had an adverse consequence on the economy around the pagan temple, right? So what was happening is as ministry expanded and people came to know Christ, they were no longer going outside of town to the temple to worship right? Because that's not actually a God. And so they began to worship the one true God, and therefore the silversmiths and blacksmiths began to lose money. And whenever you begin to lose money in a culture like that, they begin to have problems. And so they got really angry. So this group of blacksmiths led by this guy named Demetrius said, we got to get this guy out of town. He's literally ruining everything for us. And so they stir up the entire city, and 25,000 people gather in this giant amphitheater outside, and they have this huge rally, and they start chanting, uh, Ephesus is the, the home of, of uh, Artemis, right? The god of, of Ephesus. And they were chanting these things out. And Paul's companions were like, it's probably time to go, man. And so Paul says, all right, uh, I'm going to leave. And he actually leaves after three years of teaching and heads out and continues on his missionary journey, uh, leaving Timothy behind and, and to kind of continue in those footsteps. What we do know about the church, it is perhaps the most well-taught and well-educated church of any of the churches that Paul planted because he spent so much time there. He spent daily time teaching. A lot of times Paul would stop in a city. He'd be there for two or three months. He'd lay the framework of the gospel. He'd leave someone there to lead the church. And then he'd go and begin to write letters, right? Well, Paul spent all this incredible time there. And so this city was kind of teeming with believers in these small churches all over the city and all over the region. And so he has this real special relationship with them, not because he loves them anymore, but because they are the crown jewel. If all the churches were his students, they are the crown jewel of his students, right? They are the most educated and the most taught. Ephesians as a letter is really different from all of other Paul's other letters. It's not touchy-feely. It's not, hey, these are my plans. I love you like he writes to Timothy or this sort of outpouring of affection like he writes to the Philippians or he's not trying to correct any heresy like he does with the Galatians or the Corinthians. He just basically gives these students the reality of truth and says essentially it's your time to become the church. And, and in its entirety, the letter is really marked by two things. One, Paul tells them that Christ has reconciled the world to himself, that we now have right relationship with God and with each other because of Jesus. And because of that, through Christ, we are reconciled to one another and we have become the church. So the letter is really about we've been reconciled to God through Christ and we are reconciled to each other to be the church and unity is at its core. We have a new identity and a new unity. Go and be the church. And so Paul writes this letter, most likely from house arrest in Rome, while he's waiting to stand trial before Caesar, right? And he writes this letter to the church saying, essentially, you, my students, right, my prized student, it's time for you to become the church, to be the unity, to be this gospel movement which I have taught you so much about. And so it's a formal letter, and it's meant to be passed around, but it's really powerful because he basically says, there is no more teaching for you to be 
to do for me to give you. You now know it. Go and do it. And so we spent chapter one kind of looking at the intro to that, and chapter two is this sort of theological reminder of who they were apart from Christ and who they are now. And that's what we're going to be diving into this morning. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip over to Ephesians chapter two. We're just going to be in the first three verses. And I'm going to tell you this. This is a real bummer today. I'm already, I'm already going to tell you. We are going to sit in a hot tub of despair. There is no way around it, right? Like the first three verses in Ephesians are who you are apart from Christ. And I am fighting the urge to jump ahead to four, five, six, and seven to get to the good stuff, right? We're going to do that next week. But I do think it's important that we understand that, but there's not the silver lining yet, although there really is because we know what happens. We know who Christ is, but it's a real Debbie Downer today. Um, but you're going to see why in just a moment. But I want to prepare you for that in advance, that we're not going to end on this perfect little everything's great, hunky-dory, walk out of here slapping high fives. We're going to walk out with, man, apart from Jesus, we're pretty awful and we're pretty doomed and there is no hope apart from Christ, right? So give you that little kind of warning first, and then we're going to dive in. So let's go ahead and take a look at Ephesians chapter 2. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to gather in this place. For every heartbeat that's rec- uh, represented in this room, every family, every person that's here who kind of got up enough gusto to show up this morning or brought their family or, Lord, opened their Bible or sitting here, Lord, we're just a conglomerate of broken people. And what we're going to see this morning is that without you, we are absolutely in dire straits. There is no hope apart from Christ. And while this may seem like it's full of despair, and it is, there is this beautiful hope which we know in the back of our minds and hearts is anchored to Christ. The Lord, who we were or who we are apart from Christ is not the end because of Jesus. So as we hear these realities, we sit back and enjoy the truth that we know in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that that would sort of be our our silver lining this morning as we do recall and remember What exactly the world faces apart from Jesus? And it is devastating. Take a moment in your own heart this morning, just as you sit here, and just ask the Lord to teach you, just to instruct your heart, just to say, God, teach me something this morning, or just whatever it might need, encourage me, convict me, whatever. Lord, my heart is yours. Just whisper those things to the Lord. Teach me something new. take a moment and pray for someone around you like we do each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you. Be in the habit of praying for the people around you. Love their spiritual growth. Desire to see them come to know Christ. Even if you don't know them, don't recognize them, never been here, just take a flyer and just say, Lord, move in this person's life. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. You are God. You are king. We love you. We trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 2, Paul is essentially setting us up and setting the church up for who we were or who we are apart from Christ. And both of those categories are true. Because the reality is, even in this room this morning, there are those of us that had a life before Christ, or we don't know Christ yet, and so we're sitting in the middle of it. That is... That is the reality of where we are. There is no third option, right? We either know Christ and have had a life before him, or we've yet to give our life to Christ, and we're sitting in the middle of this now. And so this is what Paul is setting us up. He's basically saying, here's who we are apart from Christ. 
and who we were, even me, as Paul says. And this is kind of where we're going to spend our time. He says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live because you followed the ways of the world and and the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So he's writing this letter to the church, and he's saying, look, I need you to remember who you were and who we are apart from Christ, because it's vitally important before you can truly understand grace and the need to tell the world about grace, we have to understand the reality of the situation that the world faces and that you faced and that I faced apart from Christ. And he says this, we, Paul's including himself, right, as for you, we We're dead in our transgressions and our sins. Now, this is a common theme, right? We talk about it a lot. We are dead in our sin. So Paul sets this thing up by saying, listen, apart from Jesus, you are not dying, you are not sick, you are absolutely, fully, and totally dead. You are dead in your sin. And on one hand, we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because culturally today, we talk about sin as some kind of moral breach, but we kind of remove it from God a little bit, right? Like we remove this idea of sin as something that God is disappointed in, and it's more like this sort of kind of, I guess, thing that happens that we do that we know we shouldn't, and so we kind of sweep it under the rug a little bit and just kind of think, well, at least I'm not doing the real big ones, you know, the major four, like gambling, smoking, drinking, you know, whatever. Um, At least I'm not doing those. Uh, And we sweep sin under the rug a little bit, and we kind of think that God sees it sort of as this, oh, they're they're trying or doing whatever. And and the reality is, is that sin in Scripture, right, is very clear that God despises it, hates it, and can't be around it. And by definition, sin is anything that misses God's mark of perfection and holiness. Now, in case any of us were sitting out here this morning thinking, well, I mean, I don't really sin, right? I mean, I don't do the four that Treb just mentioned, you know, cussing, smoking, drinking, gambling, right? I don't need those. So I don't really sin. Paul throws in the idea of transgressions also, which we talked a little bit about in chapter 1. This idea of transgressions is sort of this crossing the boundary of God. It's the same word in the Greek that we get the word trespass from. So we trespass against God's boundaries when he tells us to do something and we don't, or when he tells us not to do something and we do. So the reality is, is that If sin is missing God's mark of holy perfection in our thought life, our actions, our deeds, our ideas, whatever it is, and if trespasses or transgressions are lumped into that category, meaning that I cross God's moral boundary by doing something he told me not to do or by not doing something he told me to do, that every single one of us in the last 10 minutes has sinned 10 times. It's inescapable. In fact, 1 John says that if you tell yourself or you believe you're without sin, you're a liar. You're a liar and God's presence isn't even in you. So we know that we're steeped in sin. It's part of who we are. And in that sin, Paul says this, you are dead. It doesn't mix words. That word in the Greek, the word that's there for dead, means dead. That's actually the translation. You are dead. Not dying, not sick, fully and completely dead. Now, you may be sitting here this morning going, now, I hear you, dude, but listen, I'm breathing. I'm right here. 
how in the world am I dead? I may not know Jesus, but I'm drawing lungs. I, I drew on breath of my lungs. I decided to drive here, stop by Stella Nova. Like life was unfolding. I'm not dead. So what does he mean when he says you're dead in your transgressions and sins? Well, it means two things, right? He means that we're in a current state of spiritual isolation from God. And he means that we're facing an eternal state of spiritual isolation from God. So think about it in terms of this. You were created in God's image. God made you. David tells in the psalm that he knit you together in your mother's womb, that he literally filled your life, your air, your life with, uh, or filled your lungs with life, right? God made you. And you were created in his image, and you were created to know him. We were created for fellowship with God. That is true real life. When God's creation is in fellowship with him, when our hearts are in harmony and moving in constant movement with God, when we are his and fully known by him and we fully know him, we are at full life. John 10 tells us that Jesus came that we might have abundant full life, right? So we were created to have life. And the only way that life exists is if we are in community with the one that created us. So if we do not know Jesus and sin kind of rips through our bodies and our lives and our minds, we have broken fellowship with God and we are living in a current state of isolation because God in his holiness and his wonder, right, cannot be with sinful, broken despair, which is what sin essentially is, right? It's all the ways that we fall short. So without Christ, we are fully dead currently, meaning you can be drawing air into your lungs, you can make the decision to drive here, you can stop and get a cup of coffee, and you can no more be alive than if you were literally not breathing, because life is just drawing space at that point in time. You are not who you were created to be, you don't have a relationship with the one that made you, You are chasing, as we'll see in a little bit, the world, your own ideas, your own thoughts, and you are led and governed by Satan. Paul's going to tell us. This hot tub of despair is going to get real bad. You're dead. You're not living a true life, right? So the second thing he means is that we are also dead in this eternal state of separation from God. And Paul is very specific about that, essentially that when we die, this isolation that we're currently facing, apart from Christ, continues into eternity. And a lot of times we like to gloss that over by saying it's just eternal separation from God. The Bible actually calls that hell. It gives it a name and Jesus describes it. We want to pretend sometimes that scripture doesn't talk about hell because we like a picture that doesn't involve anything we're uncomfortable with, but you cannot read scripture and get around it. Jesus describes it. He talks about it. He talks about the reality of life apart from the Father in this place of fiery sulfur with a gnashing of teeth. He uses graphic imagery. And what Paul is saying is that apart from Jesus, when we didn't know him and when we don't know him, we face no real life on earth. We are dead. We are operating by the movements of the evil one, the one that runs the kingdom of the air. We don't have full life with Christ. We are self-serving and serving and seething. We aren't even anywhere near what God has for us because we are fully dead. And that, fully, that full death continues into the afterlife. It doesn't end when we die. It leads us straight to a place that the Bible calls hell. Eternal isolation from God is hell. It is a horrific and awful and very real place. 
Do not let popular culture and new podcasters tell you that it doesn't exist. Listen to the word of God. And Paul says this, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So he's looking at the church saying, that was who you were. And he wants to tell them that because he wants them to see that the world is living in the same way. He wants them to develop a heart for the world to where they'll go and tell the world about Jesus. So the first thing that we see in this condition is that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. In a current state of isolation from God and in an eternal state of isolation from God. So this is what happens in this state. Look, continuing that verse, verse 2. In which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So he says this. He says this state of deadness that you are in, it leads to one place. And that place is that you are slave to the ways of the world. So because you are living in a state of current isolation from God and you are fully dead, you are living as a slave to the world. And that world is led and run by one entity. And that one entity is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is Satan. So all those that don't know Christ are slave to the world and its ruler, and they are governed and led and ruled by Satan. That is an absolute spiritual reality. Not fun, not nice to hear, but it is the truth. And he says this, he says, in this state, you are slaves to the world. And that slavery has two distinct things that go on it. One, you chase self-gratification, right? So he says, so while you're following the kingdom of the air, you're following Satan, while he is governing and interacting and moving your movements, you are looking for two things. One, you are looking for self-pleasure, right? All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our own sinful nature. So part of living in this dead state, being led and governed by the enemy, by the evil one, is that we set a life that pursues ourselves. Everything is about me, right? It's about my pleasure, my gratification, getting what I can get, what I deserve, what you should give me, what the world owes me, what people should give me, justice that I want for people, things that I need back on me. Everything in the life of someone that doesn't know Christ is essentially about pleasing themselves. And it comes in subtle ways, right? Doesn't mean you don't want other people to have things, but really at the core, everything is just about me. You don't agree with me, I'll shut you down. You don't agree with me, I'll shred you on social media. Like everything is driven by the me monster. And all you've got to do is read scripture a tiny bit and you realize that the key to the gospel is death to self. That's where Jesus leads us straight to, death to self. Why? Because the number one movement when we begin to follow the way of the world is really to recognize me. And Jesus says, the number one piece of the gospel is to die to you. Not about you, right? So we have this piece that says, I'm involved in the world, and when I was, I chased me. Paul's story is this, right? Remember Paul's story? We went through this whole thing back when we studied Acts. Paul's entire story was the gratification of Paul. He wanted the world to see him. 
He wanted to be next in line. He thought in his own mind when he was living currently dead apart from Christ that he was doing good things. When you don't walk with Christ, when you don't have this moral compass, when you don't use the word of God as your, as your own anchor point or your plumb line, then the things you do you think are good. Or you just redraw the lines. And I'm sure Paul thought the things that he were doing were for the good of Judaism centered around Paul. So we've got this picture, right? That in that state, we are about self-gratification. We're about pleasing ourselves. But there's also another piece. Look at that second piece. We lived according to this, right? The sinful, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So not only is it about gratifying our own sinful nature, but it's about pleasing the world, right? Its nature and thoughts. Part of the reality, right, that comes from our deep kind of reality with sin, if you will, or our deep wrestling with the state of death is that we want to please ourselves, chase ourselves. We also want to please the world. I think it comes in two categories. It comes in comparison and it comes in conformity. So when we're living in the middle of this world, um, trying to please it and the people around us, the first thing that pops up that's so devastating is comparison. We look around us and we think, man, look what they've got, what they have, what, they, what I want that they have, or you know, whatever those things are. We begin to compare our lives to lives of people, and it happens within the context of church also. We look around us and we think, man, my life is a real mess compared to what's unfolding. I wish I had this, or why do those things always happen to them? Or, and, you know, social media fuels this, right? So detrimental for our children and for us. I mean, it can be used in fine ways, but for the most part, it's just a fabrication of a lie. We have, I tell the story a lot, we have a, a friend of our daughter's when she was growing up that she was a 13 or whatever, her friend, and she asked her dad, she said, Dad, I, I, wanna, I want Instagram. And I think I'm old enough, I'm 13. He said, fine, but say goodbye to the last happy day of your life. <laughs> and we laughed and we're like, yeah, they're not that far off actually. The point was, essentially, is that once we begin to enter into this, we begin to live in this comparison game, unintentionally, and all so innocent at first. But then we begin to look at it and go, man, I want that. Like, why does that always happen to them? They were the worst person I went to high school with. Like, how in the world did this, uh, man, we look around and we're like, I'm struggling, and, and, and all the pictures around us are filtered to make reality unattainable, right? And the world is steep in this comparison because it wants you to be at a place where you aren't content because contentment alone comes from life in Christ. So we have this idea of comparison and comparison always, always leads to the desire to conform. This is why Paul talks about it in Romans 12 when he says, hey, listen, don't conform any longer to the patterns of the world because we begin to compare ourselves to the world. We want to conform. Oh, they have those shoes. They have that car. They're doing this. They're going on vacation. They're doing all these things. Like, I want that. How do I get that? How do I get to a place where people will see me and my family or our stuff like we've made it, we've arrived, or we have it together? How do we get our baby to dress as cute as their baby? Like, all of these things we begin to conform to. Right? I mean, this is what happens. This is what happens with fashion. It what happens with all kinds of things. There's no way to deny it. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't want things. I'm just saying that when you are buried in the world, you chase the things of the world. 
the way it thinks. He says its nature and its thoughts. You become movements of people that are kind of crammed into ideologies because it's what the masses think. And you don't want to be called out by the masses. And the Christian church, sadly, gets swept up in these conformity movements because it doesn't want to stand against culture. We don't want the wrath of what that means to stand up for things that we think Scripture says, proclaims. And so what do we do? Well, we either change or ignore Scripture. It's actually easier for the believer to do that than it is to go against culture. It's true. It's easier to pretend Scripture doesn't say something that it says. This is the reality of the darkness of the world. This is why this hot tub of despair is just sad. Because we're dead in our sin, current state of isolation from God, eternal state of isolation from God, slave fully to the world and its ruler, which is Satan. Don't be afraid to say the name. It's it's not Voldemort. You can say it, right? Scripture talks about him all the time. He is the ruler of the world. He pushes us towards conformity and to comparison. He shreds our identity, makes us dependent upon other people and not on Christ, makes us long for things that the world has and not long for the things that Christ tells us about. He is the great enemy. And you were a slave to the world, Paul says. And the reason he's telling the church this is because he wants to remind them how easy it is to fall back into our old way of life. You were dead in your sins. You were slave to the world. But then he makes things even better, right? He's going to take it one step farther. At the end of verse 3, he says this, All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, listen to this, like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. So as if the hot tub of despair didn't get any worse, we begin to drown in it. And this is what Paul says. He goes, you're dead in your sin. You were isolated from God here on earth without any full life. Don't tell yourself that this is the bit good as it gets. It's a lie. You're isolated eternally from God and destined for hell. You are literally slave to the world of which Satan is the ruler, and he is guiding and moving you to want to compare and conform to the world that leads to hell. And because of it, you are due the nature of God's wrath. And this is where things take a weird turn for the church, because we don't want to talk about God's wrath. We don't want to believe that a God, right, who we want to call as loving, would ever be just enough to hold accountable humanity. But Scripture, once again, talks about this reality. It talks about a great and terrible day of reckoning in which every person will stand before Almighty God and have to make an answer for their life. In fact, Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, talks about the idea being that most likely believers will be first in that line. We are not exempt from judgment. We are not exempt from God's wrath. The difference, as we'll see next week, is we have an advocate and we don't stand in fear. Because of Christ, we aren't due the penalty that we deserve. So we don't face the great and terrible day of reckoning with fear. 
We face it with confidence as we approach the throne of grace because of Jesus. But the reality is apart from Christ, it is a terrible and awful thing because we are due the full penalty of every decision, every sin, every transgression, every trespass, every idea, everything that's hidden in the back of your heart, everything that you thought that you wish no one knew, all those things you did back when you were 20 and all the things you did when you were 45 and everything in between, all of those things will be held accountable by God to you. And it is petrifying. Because if I just begin to slowly catalog the things in my own life that I've blown, messed up, thought, I can't get past 2022 without wanting to die. And if that's what we face, it is a full and total despair. But we don't like to talk about it, right? Because we like to address God as this sort of docile, loving God that is our friend and holds our hand and is slightly disappointed in our sin, but is okay with everything as long as we come back to church about the time we have children. We put them in the Christmas pageant, and that makes amends for everything we did in college. Because here I'm back. The reality is coming back to church has about as much to do with your salvation as riding a bike. Zero. What we're going to learn next week is that the only remedy for these horrific realities is Jesus. And you did nothing to deserve it. But in all of his infinite grace, and I, of course I couldn't do it, right? i got to give you this little keyhole of joy. In all of his infinite, incredible beauty has done what you could never do and took the full wrath of God Almighty so that you would not. And this is what Paul's getting. He said, why would we not tell the world this? If this is true, Right? If we were steeped in our sin, fully dead, isolated from God now and for eternity, if we were slave to the world and we are due the nature of God's wrath, why are we not crawling across our neighbor's yards to beg them to know Jesus? Do we care that little about people? This is where Paul's leading them as the church. He's going to lead them in a place of how are you infighting about what color the carpet is? How is this happening as the church when we have this message to tell the world and it is the greatest message ever whispered, spoken, or moved? The reality is we are dead in our sin. And I want that to sink in. I want you to realize exactly what Christ has done for you. It's not a joke. It's not silly. It's not a mistake. God doesn't look at it and be like, Shucks, that was a real miss. It breaks his heart and he hates it and he can't be around it. Sin should break our heart. We shouldn't be okay with it. We shouldn't be comfortable with it. We shouldn't wisp it away as just a small mistake. We should grieve over it and then celebrate the reality that we don't have to pay the penalty for it because of Jesus. Now next week what we're gonna do is we're gonna walk headlong into a tidal wave of grace. I mean a tidal wave of grace where we go from death to fully alive. Like not just, hey, the promise of eternal life, but this thing where we get to draw breath in the morning and wake up fully alive in Christ. And most of us in the church are living these lives of dead people when we are called to live these lives of incredible joy and movement.
because we have been made alive in Christ. But we can't understand our aliveness until we understand our own death. So this week as we carry these things out, and before we celebrate communion, I want the reality of death to sink in. I want you to use words like hell and wrath and Satan because they are real. Do not listen to the lie of popular Christian culture. Pay attention to the word of God. The word of God is very specific and very direct on these issues. This is not a game. Right? This is life and death. And we, apart from Christ, are due that reality. But this table, of course, is this beautiful picture of exactly what Christ did to remedy that reality. That the death that we faced, Christ knew because he took it on himself. The wrath that was due us, Jesus bore on the cross. That we no longer are slave to the world and its ruler, we become literally servants of Christ, slaves of his, bondservants of Christ, because he becomes our king and our ruler and our life. On that very night that Jesus was betrayed, the night that all would flee and run apart from him, he gathered his disciples, and after supper he took this loaf of bread and he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. And as long as you take of this cup and this bread, you are proclaiming my death until I return again. This is the great tool that Jesus gave us to unite the church in full and total unity. That no matter where you go or where you're from or what place you grew up in or what denomination this table unifies the church, and Ephesians, right, stands on the backbone of that unity, that in Christ we are one. So because of that, this is not a denominational table. It's open to all those who profess faith in Christ. But Paul does tell us to take it seriously, to examine our hearts, to make sure that we've confessed those areas of sin, that we understand the death that we face and the wrath that we're due, recognizing that Jesus frees us from those things, we lay our hearts bare and open before him. This isn't a ritual or a habit or a part of worship. It is an expression of who Christ is to who you were. So this morning, as we do each month, we take communion by means of intinction, which means we'll have two stations, one in the front and the back. You take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and eat, and you're going to turn to your seat. We don't do anything real orderly around here, so as you feel call or le- called or led, uh, you can go to any of the stations, front or back. And then we ask you to remain standing as Don, our worship team, will close us out in worship this morning. I'm going to invite our elders to come forward this morning to serve, and as we do so, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality of this table, for what it means, for who we are, for the promise that comes in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the fact that even though we read those verses and we spend some time in that place of despair, there's no way around the reality of knowing Jesus, that he has come. We can't read that story without fully knowing and embracing that reality. So as much as the despair is there for the believer, it doesn't end there. There's this great and incredible picture of grace that just stares us in the face because of Jesus. 
So Lord, this morning as we celebrate this meal, may we understand the reality of our own situation, what we're due and who we are apart from Christ, but in that tiny light of knowing that Jesus changes everything. So Lord, hear our heart as we worship and as we celebrate this meal. Um, resonate these things in our hearts, for we are eternally grateful that you did for us what we could not do on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need gluten-free, Jesus, it's down here. So. Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all, Jesus paid all, all to him I owe, sin Left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change the leper spot. A crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, sin that left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Life up from the dead. Oh, praise. 
my own Oh, sin had left a crimson stain He washed it white as snow He washed it white as snow He washed it white as snow Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the reality of this meal that we celebrate, for the truth that it represents in Scripture, God, for the promise that comes from knowing you, that while we are dead in our sin, the reality is that in Christ we have been washed. We cannot escape this truth. We love that. As much as we see those verses of despair, they are anchored in verses of joy. And so this morning, Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would make that reality press deeply into our hearts, that though sin and death are real, and the ruler of this word is real, we have the answer in Christ and the joy that comes from knowing him. In Jesus' name. Let's close our time in worship this morning.
It's vital to remember who we were and who we are apart from Christ. It's vital for two reasons. One, it reminds us of what we have in Christ. And two, it pushes us out the door to tell the world about what they could have in Christ. So as we prepare our hearts to come headlong next week into this flood of grace, let us be reminded what life looks like without Jesus and grateful for every breath that we draw with him. Go in peace.